life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a tale of a lesser-known Victoria Cross recipient. Uh, his name, William Edward Sanders. It was from the First World War and New Zealand's only naval VC, full stop. And he's not particularly well-known, although he's remembered in scholarships and uh, some memorials around the place as well. And he's a hell of a story. Jared. Yeah, William Edward Sanders, otherwise known as Gunner Billy, his nickname was, right from a very early age. This was a, a man made for the sea and made for naval command as well. And interestingly, you know, we've had about 22 VCs awarded. Charles Upham is the most famous, of course. He got two, but he, this is our only naval VC winner. And interesting, Graham, the only time ever that the award was made on a recommendation of the enemy, in this case a German U-boat commander, and that makes it very special, but very very interesting story and one that's only come to light really after all the records were declassified because it was only 19 words describing his uh, action when they gave the VC to him. It says, in recognition of his conspicuous gallantry, consummate coolness and skill in command of one of His Majesty's ships in action. And that was it, because, of course, he served on one of the highly secret Q ships, and this is the existence the British authorities never wanted to advertise. And this was a time, of course, in World War One, when the German U-boat menace to Allied shipping in the Atlantic reached its height. Now, Q ships were actually merchant ships crewed by naval personnel. They um, bared hidden weaponry and when attacked by the U-boat a portion of the ship's crew, now these were referred to as a panic party, would appear to evacuate the vessel and, and uh, sometimes they'd set smoking fires to sort of simulate damage and this would encourage its attacker to approach and when the U-boat was close enough the Q-ship would raise the white ensign and the the guns would become operational and open fire, hopefully destroying the submarine. It was a very brave action to be involved in and one that very few people knew about. And William Edward Sanders was a commander on one of these naval reserve boats, the HMS Prize. It was actually a schooner made to look completely like it was a civilian ship. This was accepted in World War One because it sounds on the face of it like real skullduggery, something dishonourable about going, oh, um, we are just a merchant ship, ha-ha, bang. Yeah, well, exactly, but it was a technical thing. You, As long as you raised that ensign before the gun fired, and they could do it simultaneously, of course, then it was quite accepted practice. Mm -hmm. As long as you flew that flag 
he showed remarkable coolness and interestingly he got that nickname Gunner Billy from like at the age of nine he, he, he played with a cannon that someone brought along to a sailing club one day he just took a complete liking to it and he got the name very early I'd like to sort of go back a little bit here on his early days because he was a Kiwi through and through he was born in um, the Auckland suburb of Kingsland on the 7th of February 1883. Now, his father was Edward Sanders. He was a bootmaker. His mum was Emma Jane Sanders. He was the first of four children there, and his maternal grandfather was a sea captain, and he worked for the family shipping company. Now, the, the broader family had a quite a bit of involvement in shipping, and obviously, he really took a liking to that side of his family. Now, Sanders attended Nelson Street School, but in 1894, when his family moved to Takapuna, he shifted to Takapuna School there, and the school was close to Lake Pupuki, where he learned to sail. Now, he took to this like nothing on earth, and he earned the nickname, as I said, Gunner Billy, for his exploits there. That area actually is very famous today for its sailing pedigree, Takapuna races, Lake Pupuki. That's right, exactly. Because he left school, he wasn't interested in school, hated it. He left at the age of 15. And his parents, they apprenticed him as a mercer in Auckland. Now, this is obviously, I had to look that up just to make sure it was a trader, but of course it was. But he wasn't at all interested in, in that profession. And, and he desired a career in the sea. And he used to go down to the wharves whenever he could to inspect all the berth ships and chat with all the captains and crewmen. In 1899, he joined the Kapanui as a cabin boy now only about 16 I think at the time an officer on the ship that was a coastal steamer which worked the coast north of Auckland he liked the boy and he advised Sanders to take up this position of cabin boy and he applied for it and got it and he, he remained on that boat for three years now 1902 he joined the Aparima and that was a union steamship company ship which traded between New Zealand and India and he, he did quite a few trips up there actually and he, he transferred to the uh, SS Hinamoa in 1906 as an ordinary seaman. Now that was one of the two government steamers which serviced all the lighthouses along the New Zealand coast and depots on the offshore islands and also some sort of isolated communities as well but he did all that early work on steamships now it was sort of regarded by seamen that seafarers who worked under sail were more skillful and he applied for a job under sail with the Craig line, sailed aboard the Joseph Craig it was called and that ship founded on the Hokianga Bar in 1914 and he, he left that boat and he and he went back to steam but he'd acquired a sort of ambition which was to become a skilful sailor. He had his sailor's master's ticket as well as a steamship ticket so he was very, very well equipped to go into the First World War and he knew exactly what he wanted to do, Graham, and that was to see armed combat basically on the sea. Anyway, he lobbied quite effectively, and during the early part of the war, he worked as second mate on the Meraki, and he sat for his extended master's certificate, and he passed that with honours in 1914, and he was discharged from the Meraki in December, and then he applied for the Royal Naval Reserve, 
It was an unusual sort of thing to apply for. He wasn't called up, but he did serve as a merchant navy officer on the troop ships Wolutcha and the Tafua, which were taking troops over. Now, he was quite persistent in his pleas to authority to be recruited into the Royal Naval Reserve, and he made repeated pleas to them, and he travelled to London on the 19th of April 1916 and actually put in a personal plea on April 19th. 1916, he was appointed as an acting sub-lieutenant on the Royal Navy Reserve. Now, after a period of time at the HMS Excellent Training Facility, he was granted a position uh, on the Heligoland. Now, that was his first Q-ship operating against German submarines in the western approaches to England, basically off-island. This idea of the Q-ship has, well, it strikes me as a clear parallel with something in biology. It's a bit like some, something like the anglerfish, isn't it? In that you look like you're good bait and a little fish comes up to you and goes, oh, hello, I could eat that, and then wham! You're swallowed up yourself by the anglerfish. Yeah, exactly. And Q-ships, they presented an external appearance, of course, of small, unarmed coastal vessels. And, of course, an enemy submarine commander, he probably wouldn't consider it worth attacking it or wasting a torpedo because they only carried about 14 torpedoes, these U-boats. They were precious to keep, you know, which you'd use against a larger ship. So, um, uh, you know, it, it used quite a bit of subterfuge there, there was no doubt about it. And the Heligoland, which he was appointed to, it was actually a Dutch brigantine. They armed it with 12-pounder guns and a machine gun. Now, Sanders was second in command to fellow New Zealander Lieutenant uh, A.D. Blair. So the two Kiwis, they were running the ship and they actually helped oversee its conversion to a Q-ship. Now, on its first patrol in September 19 the ship participated in two actions against U-boats and on the second, that was the following month, it again engaged two U-boats. Now, during the first engagement, the Heligoland was becalmed without engines and extremely vulnerable just sitting there. And it was surrounded by three submarines. It was like a sitting duck and with limited manoeuvrability, it was forced to reveal its identity actually early in the engagement and on this occasion a screen concealing one of the guns jammed and Sanders and Blair exposed themselves to potential gunfire from the U-boat being attacked in order to cut away the screen with axes and crowbars so it was a bit of a hard operation that one And but his conduct on that ship actually resulted in his promotion to lieutenant for Sanders so that was a big upgrade and he was also recommended for command of his own ship. Now, in February 1917, he was appointed captain of the HMS Prize. Now, this was a three-masted topsail schooner that was sailing under the German flag and it had been seized in 1914. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the circumstances were, but it was retaken by the British Graham and then converted to a Q-ship in early 1917 something of a prize of war 
Yeah, so now Sanders has his own command. He's fully out there to get these submarines and the action that he engages in is one of the most remarkable stories. Amazingly, it could never be told for about 50 years because it's classified, but it's just a remarkable story. Had me on the edge of my seat. All right, we'll take a break and come back. This man, W.E. Sanders of Kingsland, Auckland, Victoria Cross, World War One. 1917, aboard one of these strange Q-ships set to lure U-boats to their own peril. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The story of one of our lesser-known VCs, the only naval uh, recipient of the Victoria Cross, was in World War One. He came from Auckland and was determined to command a ship. It seemed as though that's what he wanted to do. Had a great sailing pedigree in New Zealand and now seen some conflict in these subterfuge-like Q-ships that would lure U-boats to their peril uh, in World War One by just looking like an innocent craft and then going bang. Anyway, he's got his own ship now. William Edward Sanders. Lieutenant Commander now, Sanders, he's given command of the prize, now a topsail schooner of some 180 tonnes, and the very first ship captured from the Germans during the war, they'd actually captured it from the Dutch. The Admiralty decided in its desperate efforts to sort of stem the onslaughts of the enemy submarines to refit her as a mystery ship, one of the Q ships, and send her against her former owners. Now, these U-boats grow had took a terrible toll. They could sink four or five or six ships in a day, no trouble at all, and they just crippled the British effort of getting stuff around the place. I'm also surprised at how advanced the technology of U-boats was for World War One. Have a look at the equivalent with tanks. They don't look very flash. They're amazingly speedy too, the U-boats. They were so manoeuvrable, unbelievably manoeuvrable. Man, the Germans were way up there on the technology. There was no doubt about it. Now, Sanders and Leitzen, now in command of this boat, had actually taken a short course on how to meet and defeat the enemy in their new role, and they joined the ship at Falmouth. And on the 25th of April 1917, when U-boats were doing their greatest damage, they set out under sail on their great adventure. Now, at midnight on the 30th of April 1917, now they were 180 miles off the south of Ireland in the Atlantic. And this is perhaps one of the most remarkable stories, actually, how they engaged these U-boats. They voyaged south the Irish coast for a while and they didn't encounter anything for a while. And they were actually really disappointed because they were eager to engage the foe, of course. But on the evening of the 30th of April, April, as I said, about 180 miles south of Ireland, the alarm gong sounded and the whole ship's company rushed to action stations. About two minutes later, a submarine at a range of 3,000 yards opened fire. As was courtesy procedure, they put three shells over the schooner. Now, the prize uh, immediately lowered her topsails and the well-drilled panic party of the Q-ship, they manned their boat 
and they pushed off with the customary flurry and shouting as if they were abandoning ship, making the biggest hullabaloo that they could. Now, the majority of the crew, of course, lay hidden, and they were just hidden as in just behind the gunnels and stuff. It, was, it wasn't actually hidden in anything uh, remarkable. You know, they were waiting for the submarine to come to close quarters. Now, when the panic party had pulled clear, the submarine opened up, but it was still firing over it, okay? So the U-boat was was sort of hedging his bets, really. The commander was still suspicious, and he kept firing at the prize as he closed in. Now, the submarine, it was U-93, was one of Germany's latest, and it was actually on its maiden voyage. And as you said, great technology. She had a displacement of um, about a 1,000 tonnes submerged, and she really was, Graham, a formidable fighting craft. She had four torpedo tubes in the bow and two in the stern. She carried 16 torpedoes in total, and on deck, four. Uh, 4.1-inch gun, and at full speed, she could reach nearly 17 knots on the surface and nine knots below. That's not bad for a submarine back in 1917, Graham. Absolutely amazing. And also the technology of the electric batteries required as well for being under the water to do nine knots. Wow, it's a pretty flash thing. Yeah, and, and the submarine was actually under the command of a very distinguished German, Count Spiegel von Underzu Peckelsham. <laughs> Sorry. It's a hell of a name, isn't it, Jared? It is. It is. When I read it, I had to practice it, actually. I did look him up. He's Edgar. Like, his oh. name's Edgar. Edgar Count Spiegel von Underzu <laughs> Peckelsheim. Just a rough translation. It's Edgar, the mirror from and to the House of Peckle. But remarkable man to be just suddenly commanding a submarine, I must say, in the top of the fleet, Line 1-2, U-boat 93. Anyway, when he met the prize, the HMS prize, he was taking the submarine home and he was happy in the knowledge that he'd carried out a successful mission and he'd used all 16 torpedoes to telling effect and he'd bagged six Allied ships within the last 24 hours. Absolutely devastating. Now, several of the survivors of those stricken vessels had been picked up by the submarine and they'd been treated most courteously by the Count and his men and among them was a master of one of the sunken ships. Now, this was a Captain A.D. Burroughs who was on the submarine's deck when she engaged the prize in action. Effectively a prisoner of war from one of the previous encounters where they were sinking the uh, merchant ship. Yes, that's right. As, as uh, was the sort of custom of these U-boat rescues, the POWs were actually allowed to go up and roam the deck because, well, they couldn't really go anywhere, could they? But they were treated relatively courteous, the ones that were rescued anyway. Now, Captain Burroughs' report and an account written by Lieutenant Beaton after the war gives a detailed picture of that action that ensued then. Now, the U-boat 
Ross shelling badly damaged the schooner and it actually holed her in three places and it set the engine room on fire and it had also put two holes through her mainmast so that was about to go as well. And this is the actual account from Lieutenant Beaton. He says, During all this time, Sanders was perfectly cool and occasionally crept forward on his hands and knees to pay me a visit at the forward guns to ascertain how the guns' crews were standing the shell fire. It was absolutely necessary that Sanders should keep on his hands and knees while moving about the deck, for it must be borne in mind that our ship was supposed to be abandoned and had the commander of the submarine who, by his own confession afterwards, kept his glasses riveted on the ship in order to detect the least movement or suspicious circumstances had he, I say, seen any movement about our deck, he would have immediately had the submarine submerged and our chances of success would have vanished. So they're still keeping completely quiet as the submarine comes alongside. Now, the submarine commander could see the ship was in a sinking condition, so he ceased fire and he slowly and circumspectly steamed up close to get particulars of the ship's name and tonnage. Now, Beatson goes on, Sanders saw this and with unexampled courage and iron nerve he held his fire until he could get the submarine into such a position that there could be no escape from it. All this time the guns' crews had been lying flat on the deck with their guns and when the submarine was within 80 yards on our port quarter, Sanders decided that the moment for which he had waited for 40 trying minutes had come and he gave the order through the voice pipe to open the action, at the same time running our white ensign to the mainmast head. So they couldn't open fire without that flag up, but as soon as it was being hoisted, they opened fire. So the submarines found out uh, it's not dead, it's a live one. That's right. And the courage was allowing that submarine to come up so close and being able to completely destroy the ship and just being able to hold your fire and hold your nerve. Yeah, because they could have easily sunk it because they presumed that everyone had gone off, the panic party had gone off. The account goes on. We opened fire with two 12-pounders and two Lewis guns, our first 12-pounder shot, striking the submarine's forward gun and taking the gun and gun crew overboard. The first 10 shots were all hits, all from our after gun, while the forward 12-pounder also put in some good shooting. From my position at the forward guns, I could see the submarine commander on deck just forward of the conning tower. And when our guns roared out a welcome to him, he signed to the man at the wheel on the conning tower to put the helm hard port, evidently with the intention of ramming our little ship. But he must have seen at once that he was too close to make the circle in time, for he immediately countermanded the order and signed to go hard a star in order to steam away from us and probably thought to finish us with a stern torpedo, although, of course, that had all been used up. 
That was the last order on board the submarine. A second later, one of the guns from the prize actually hit one of the German sailors and his body exploded and a large portion hit the commander and knocked him into the sea. So they were in the full steam of battle at this point and they played a stream of bullets from their Lewis gunner right across the crew of the submarine. Now a lot of them had come up onto the deck of the submarine and they observed the bullets, they just causing a huge number of casualties. They were just falling down like flies. But the submarine had managed to steam away about 200 yards. But one of the shells must have hit her propelling machinery, as the report goes, for she lost way and she stopped and fell broadside onto the swell, then gradually settled down by the stern, sinking shortly afterwards. The last we saw of her being her bow pointing straight up in the air as she took the final plunge. It really is a description of the horrors of war, isn't it? It would have happened all over the place. Uh, The scene of a body being blown apart and parts of that body knocking the commander, Vom Unzu, Pekelsheim, into the sea. Good God. And so he's bobbing about in the Atlantic. Yeah. We'll take a break and come back and continue the story of the New Zealander, William Sanders, New Zealand's only Victoria Cross from the naval side of war. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. This week, the story of William Edward Sanders, an extreme outsider in as much as our only maritime Victoria Cross winner. It's amazing how detailed the conflict, how detailed it is recorded, because there's a British person on the U-boat and there are, of course, survivors on his Q-ship, a mystery ship, which was to lure U-boats. This is pretty heavy action. He held his fire until the very, very last minute and then set to at this U-boat and we're just off the coast of Ireland, when I say just about 200 miles, in 1917. Jared pretty strategic action. It looks like the submarine's been sunk. The panic party in their boat, they pulled around and they picked up three prisoners of war, including the German U-boat commander who was swimming around in the water. He hadn't died. Then all hands on the prize deck, including the three Germans pitched in, trying to plug up all the shot holes to stop it from sinking. The Germans apparently participated quite well in this. These emergency repair operations Operations. They were carried on well into the darkness. They've been trying to sink the prize and now they're trying to keep her afloat because they're on her. That's right, yeah. They were then able to set a course for the Irish coast. Now, all aboard the Q-ship were certain that U-93 had gone to the bottom. It had upended, Graham, and just sunk down. But they were mistaken. As soon as he found his commander missing, Lieutenant Ziegler, the second-in-command of the submarine, he took over immediate command and he managed to get the submarine back on a level sort of foot and he gave orders to zigzag the boat at full speed. Now, the zigzag, because part of their propulsion unit had been hit by the prize. Now, Captain 
Burroughs, who was on the submarine, said later that they rushed away at full speed and he said he'd never seen a ship move so quickly. The Germans had only one desire and that was to escape out of range and they had the failing light on their side for that, of course. And he also recalled that there'd been a complete panic amongst the German crew when the prize suddenly opened fire. Captain Burroughs on deck, he heard that all the men wanted to do was to get on deck and abandon ship, but they'd been prevented from doing so by the German officers who drew their revolvers and they kept the men at their posts. Wow. Yeah, it's another one of those things of war, isn't it? Yeah, you can just imagine it, Graham. Now, their U-boat was so badly damaged that it could not be submerged properly, actually, and Lieutenant Ziegler realised that if they were to have any chance of reaching Germany, it would have to be on the surface all the way. But remarkably, Lieutenant Ziegler, he navigated his crippled submarine for days off the coast of Ireland, not even been seen once, and he crawled slowly north and made his way around the Orkneys and safely back to Germany and it was a, quite a feat of seamanship actually I think he was later decorated for that mm, yeah that is something getting home yeah. wounded all that distance gosh imagine life on the U-boat it is impossible to imagine isn't it oh it is what the food must be like the air god yeah, and apparently after this attack, there'd been the most terrible disappointment amongst the U-boat crew. Their sudden change of fortune, they were going home victorious, of course, and then suddenly they were a crippled craft. But the Germans, they treated their prisoners as considerately as before, and Captain Burroughs was always allowed the run of the deck whenever he wanted it. This was the time of that sort of fair play, gentlemanly conduct amongst officers, wasn't it? There was gallantry, wasn't there, between officers in particular. But anyway, for his grand leadership and gallant action in the fight, Lieutenant Commander Sanders, he was awarded the VC and at his base at Milford Haven a few weeks later, he received the Sword of Honour from the Navy in recognition of his gallant work. But as I said, there was only the briefest mention of it in New Zealand and all we heard about was this 19 words in recognition of his conspicuous gallantry, consummate coolness and skill in command of one of His Majesty's ships in action. That was it. We didn't hear anything else because he still had a secret mission to do. Okay, these missions are still underway. So what happened to our decorated naval officer William Edward Sanders from World War One. Uh, we'll find out when we return. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, William Edward Sanders, Victoria Cross, New Zealander and our only naval Victoria Cross for extreme gallantry. These ships would lure U-boats towards them and then open all hell at them. He's managed to capture the commander from U-boat 93 as he was thrown into the water. He was hit by bits of his other crew men. Eek. Anyway, William Sanders has been recognised in Britain. Has he received his Victoria Cross? 
Yes, he received that at uh, his base at Milford Haven, which was his base for the Naval Reserve. And a few weeks later, he received the Sword of Honour from the Navy. Now, the prize, of course, had been severely damaged, and it contained a mass of what they called mechanical gadgets back then. It was actually a state-of-the-art sort of surveillance ship. Uh, But, of course, all that had to be kept down below decks and unable to be seen. The entire schooner was repaired in secrecy, virtually no one was allowed anywhere near it and soon again it was put to sea in search for submarines again and of course Lieutenant Commander Sanders still in command. Now a U-boat was sighted in June but instead of attacking the submarine merely bobbed up once or twice and then disappeared and it was thought that the submarine was taking a photograph of the Q-ship but as it was thanks to Lieutenant Ziegler the prize's description was already well known in Germany. Now why that submarine didn't attack is unknown really. Because they had the description of the the ship, they probably knew it was going to bite maybe. Yeah, possibly, but I'm just surprised perhaps they didn't sink it Mm. as well. Maybe they didn't consider it worth it. But on the next mission, the prize towed a submerged British submarine in the hope that while an enemy submarine was attacking the schooner, the British submarine would cast off and torpedo the enemy in the process. This is a crazy thing. I didn't actually realise this happened in naval warfare in the First World War. A schooner? is towing a submarine. Yeah, why would it even have to tow it, for God's sake? But anyway... Well, power under the water is the most precious thing. You've got no oxygen. Yeah, they've got to conserve everything. Now, virtually in the same vicinity that they encountered U-93, that was the first U-boat attack that they had, the Q-ship met up with another German submarine. Now, this was also a new U-boat, and she was on her maiden voyage to the Mediterranean. And this was on the the afternoon of the 14th of August, 1917. Now... The prize was acting as a decoy for the submerged submarine it had in tow. And the submarine commander, the British submarine commander, was to be told by radio telephone when to cast off. But at the critical moment that he was meant to cast off, the submarine couldn't be freed. It just seems bizarre, actually, that they didn't have that one worked out. So that means that they disengaged the connection to the schooner from the submarine end. Yes, that's the only way they could do it. And they had to wait until night to come up to be out of sight so they could yes. go up the front and, Bob, can you unhook that, please? D. Yeah, amazing. I bet the Germans had that technology down to uh, Pat, I bet. Anyway, Sanders blazed away at the enemy at 200 yards, but the attack failed because the enemy submarine dived under and sped away. Almost submerged, the U-boat stalked the Q-ship into the night, and then it sent two torpedoes towards the prize and blew it to bits, basically. Oh, God. Yeah, it just exploded. They totally annihilated that boat. And in fact, the rescue craft that came out to look for it, they found quite a bit of debris, but not one sign of crew. And the British submarine, it was just hanging around looking at other people go to the bottom. Yeah, well, it didn't seem to do very much at all. It didn't even engage or anything. 
And it was out of that action that Lieutenant Commander Sanders was posthumously awarded the DSO. Distinguished Service Order. Yeah. Yeah. And the fate that befell that Q-ship, the prize, the consensus amongst the naval men was sort of attributed partly to the fact that no one aboard who had seen the crippled U-93 stealing away into the darkness. And, And had that submarine been seen heading back to Germany, the Admiralty would have advised of her escape and would have realised the futility and future of sending out a trap ship whose description was known to the enemy. Right, so the British never knew that Youth 93 got away and therefore thought that the prize was still a mystery ship, but no, once they got back to Germany, she was well known and described. Yeah, and what they should have done, of course, was change or alter the external appearance of the ship in some way because these craft are identified by silhouettes mostly. Every crewman knows uh, the sort of ships that they are going to encounter. So Lieutenant Commander Sanders, he was 34 at the time of his death. He was a uh, bachelor. His um, rapid promotion and the distinction he quickly won in the Navy was such that had he survived, Graham, he, he definitely would have risen to a high naval rank. He'd never married, just dedicated his life to the sea and to the Navy, and he certainly died without any knowledge, of course, of his Distinguished Service Order Medal for his actions on that last battle. But the emergence of correspondence um, with his very first Q-ship commander, that was an A.D. Blair, makes it clear he knew, of course, of his VC prior to his death, but he hadn't actually received it, the actual medal. He just received a letter that he was going to be awarded this medal. Now, in June 1918, Sanders' father received his son's VC and DSO from the Governor-General of New Zealand. And Sanders VC, now this is the only one awarded to a New Zealander serving in the Navy, and as DSO, they're on display at the Auckland War Memorial Museum. Mm. Actually, there are lots of little memorials to Sanders around the place, including an exhibit of photographs and uh, all his citations at the Takapuna Primary School which he attended. There's a bronze tablet in the church at Milford Haven in England, which was his home port uh, of the prize anyway. And there's a Sanders Memorial Scholarship at the University of Auckland for children of members of the Royal Navy or the Mercantile Marine. Yeah, that's still going, actually. uh, Yeah, it still has gone on to this day. 900 bucks once every three years. Oh, right, okay. And the best-known memorial, I suppose, in terms of popularity is the Sanders Cup for interprovincial competition between 14-foot, well, that's 4.3-metre, centreboard X-class yachts, which is still contested to this day in the Waitamata Harbour, I understand. Well, he's part of our long, distinguished history of maritime life right through to... Boat racing. He was just superb on the sea. There was no doubt. Every account about him, that's where he wanted to be, on the sea, and to be fighting as well. I mean, some men are made to fight, Graham. They really are. I have to say that. You know, they're just born for it. They just can't wait to go to the war. And he was one of them.
And yet we really knew nothing of how he won his VC because of the secrecy. For how long? 50-odd years, actually, before it properly declassified. There's actually a very good account I've drawn on a bit of today, too, from Rex Monagatti, and he calls this chapter in his 1962 book, New Zealand Sensations, he calls it Mystery Ship Man's VC. It was still a mystery, basically just coming to light what was happening, but I think it was quite remarkable that the enemy commander, the U-boat captain who recommended that he get a VC, is quite exceptional, that. And I think it harks back to an era when war was gallant in many ways. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. This week, the story of one of our VCs, but our only naval VC from this encounter in World War I. And he went to the bottom, knowing that he'd won the VC, but not having received the actual hardware of it. Nonetheless, all right. Um, and seems to be well celebrated here and there, if not well known to this day. Uh, William Edward Sanders, our outsider this week. William Edward Sanders, VC. Thanks, Gerard. Good one, Graham. for listening this weekend. If you want to know or get an early heads up on what's on next weekend's program, subscribe to the Facebook page, Weekend Variety Wireless, and you'll get notifications there as soon as we've cobbled together some sort of a program. It usually goes up on a Friday afternoon. And don't forget, this is downloadable as a podcast hour by hour. Uh, speaking of Jared Hindmarsh and his outsider's tales, he's away doing some research at the moment, so we're focusing on World War One stuff, obviously, 100th anniversary coming up of its merciful ending. Uh, but a little while ago, Jared had this particular request. These are sort of some of the tales that have come out from whale encounters. But, Graham, there's one I'm going to have to solicit a reply from the audience if there is anyone know anything about this? I've heard from three different sources this tale about a sperm whale that was 
beached in New Zealand, which was often a great occasion, actually, because people could uh, boil down the whale for oil or whatever. Sometimes all settlers would knock off and come down to the water to help themselves to the whale meat or whatever. Yeah, well, it would be a great bonus because a lot of energy and endeavour and bravery is spent getting these things. If one washes up, oh, thank goodness.